In Luke 2, 22-40, being faithful Jews, we find the parents of Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple. Now, they've made the journey here from Bethlehem in order to follow the requirements of Leviticus chapter 12, 3-8, to have Jesus circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, and to purify the family through an animal sacrifice to God. Though already an exciting day, it becomes even more exciting as two senior saints react to the baby Jesus. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the older gentleman, Simeon, speaks a blessing and a prophecy about the child Jesus. In Jesus, Simeon sees God rescuing humanity. Simeon sees Jesus as the light ready to pierce the darkness of the world. He sees Jesus as the revelation for the Gentiles. And finally, Simeon sees in Jesus the glory of God. God once again with Israel. Well, hearing Simeon say all of this, the text says that Mary and Joseph marveled. They were amazed. They were amazed not by the details Simeon shared about Jesus, for the angel of God already told them all of this in Luke chapter 1. No, what amazes them, what amazes Mary and Joseph is the fact that someone else, someone else knows the secret. Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. Can't you see him? Can't you see the delight of Mary and Joseph in their eyes? In fact, I imagine them laughing and and cheering at the amazing blessing that Simeon has just prayed over Jesus. But then the mood changes, especially for Mary. Simeon leans down and he whispers into Mary's ear, Listen carefully, he says, This child is destined to be the cause of the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be rejected. Indeed, as a result of him, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword, a sword, will pierce your own soul as well. Being the sweet grandfather type, Simeon would rather have bitten off his tongue than to tell Mary this news. But he couldn't keep silent, because what the Holy Spirit prompted him to say, it had to be said. You see, this baby, this child, Jesus, he's divine. Like his Father in heaven, the infant Son of God has supernatural omniscience, knowing even the inner thoughts and the secrets of the heart of every person, you and me included. Jesus knows your inner thoughts right now. How do we know this? All we have to do is look at him. In fact, John describes Jesus resurrected in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Dressed as a priest, Jesus is a mediator, the peacemaker between a holy God and sinful humanity. 
Now I want you to notice his eyes. The text says in verse 14, they were like blazing fire. Now, we think of eyes blazing with fire as being lasers trying to destroy us or lasers trying to destroy somebody. But remember, Jesus is dressed as a priest, not an executioner, not an assassin. Destruction is not his goal. Reconciliation is. Jesus seeks to reconcile sinners with their holy God. So let's go back to the fiery eyes. Why fire? Jesus' eyes are ablaze because they penetrate into each of us to reveal our thoughts and our hearts about God. His eyes of fire seek to purify us. You see, Jesus uses his omniscience to save people by showing believers and non-believers what is holding us back from a closer relationship with God. So for a moment, as the fiery eyes of Jesus look into your heart, What does he see as holding you back from a closer relationship with God? What is Jesus calling you to do about it? In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' omniscience is a key theme. Take Luke 4, for instance. Even though his childhood neighbors in Nazareth speak well of Jesus to his face, Luke 4.22, Jesus exposes their true thoughts when he says in verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Turn a page over to chapter 5. After forgiving and healing a paralyzed man, the Pharisees were thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus tells them what they're thinking. Luke 5.22. One more chapter, Luke 6. Jesus heals the man with the shriveled hand, and he heals him on the Sabbath. And knowing the evil thoughts of the teachers of the law, Jesus asks the healed man to stand up. And then Jesus asks the religious leaders this, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it. Luke 6, verse 8. Notice what he does. In front of a crowd, There the religious leaders stand, fully exposed. They couldn't hide their thoughts from Jesus. So Simeon was right. Jesus would throw open people's hearts, revealing how they stand before God. Now, though it sounds like a really cool superpower to have, I want you to notice what Simeon tells Mary it will cause. Luke 2.34 This child is destined to be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel. Falling, rising. The two responses people will have to Jesus. Uh, Visualize it this way. Imagine Jesus as a rock, as a stone. You see, to those who do not believe Jesus to be Savior, Jesus will be a rock that trips them up. Jesus will be a rock that they fall upon, and they are broken by him, and they reject him. Isaiah gives us this picture of Jesus in chapter 8, verses 14 to 15. It says, He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Verse 15, Many of them will stumble. They will fall and they will be broken. They will be snared and captured. 
Now, to those who believe, to those who believe Jesus, repent and follow him, Jesus will be a rock, a stone that is solid and trustworthy. And like a cornerstone that is set in place to build a building upon, believers in Jesus will rise up. Literally, they will resurrect as buildings, building their lives upon Jesus' teachings. Because of this decision, they will not be shaken. Believers, uh, no matter how bad things get, no matter how bad the world treats them, they will not, not be shaken. And again, this picture Jesus gives comes from Isaiah 28, 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken. They will never panic. Now, you know the question I must ask. When Jesus exposes who you really are, do you trip and fall over him, rejecting him? Or do you build your life even more on Jesus' teachings? Another way to ask the question is this. Is Jesus your tripping stone or cornerstone? Jesus will trip many people up. And looking at her infant son, Mary now understands that Jesus will be a suffering Savior because many will be tripped up by him. Many will reject him, and they will not want to hear the truth that Jesus speaks. And they will do anything they can to silence him, even crucifying him on a cross. And the worst part is, Mary will witness it. It will bring her such sorrow, the text says, it will feel like swords piercing her soul. And that is when sorrowful Mary meets an older woman in her mourning herself. Her name is Anna. Anna is pushing 100 years old, living 84 of those years as a widow. I want to be like Anna. I want her lived devotion to God. You see, Anna in the story, she never leaves the temple. She worships night and day through fasting and prayer, lived devotion. I want to be like Anna, don't you? Now, Anna is familiar with sorrow, but not because she lost her husband. Her mourning is a protest, a protest of the spiritual condition of God's people. Because all is not well in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is desperate for a savior, and so she prays and she fasts. One day while praying, Anna sees Mary holding Jesus, and Anna goes up to them. Now, unlike Simeon, who talked with the parents, upon seeing Jesus, Anna talks to God. She praises God for this child. And then she tells everyone who has looked forward to Jerusalem's redemption that this child would be the liberator. Jesus, the deliverer, he will be the great redeemer that they have waited hundreds and generation, hundreds of years and generations for. In the infant Jesus, Anna sees the answer to her prayers. And that is what turns Anna's sorrow into joyful praise. As Anna praises God, she's not the only one singing. Get in your Bibles and turn back to Psalm 148, a, Christ, a Christmas psalm. It opens in verses 1 through 6 with an invitation to the heavens, to all God's angels, and all his heavenly hosts to praise God. Then you skip down to verses 7 through 12, and the choir begins to grow even larger. 
Every animal on earth is now invited to come and sing. The sea creatures are offered their own section in the choir. And even the sun, the moon, and all the stars receive an invite to sing. All creation is invited to praise God, and creation joins in. Did you know there's a field of science known as bioacoustics? And their research has shown that millions of ultrasonic sounds surround us right now. Now, you won't be able to hear it, but creation is singing right now. And they're singing praises to God. Did you know that the electron shell of the carbon atom produces the same harmonic scale as the Gregorian chant? Or that the singing of whales can be can travel thousands of miles underwater? Or meadowlarks? They have a range of 300 notes. There are supersensitive instruments that have discovered that even earthworms, worms, make faint staccato sounds. Arnold Summerfield, the German physicist and pianist, he observed this, a single hydrogen atom which emits 100 frequencies is more musical than a grand piano which only emits 88 frequencies. Science writer Lewis Thomas, he summed it up this way, if we had better hearing and could discern the singing of seabirds, the rhythmic drumming of schools of mollusks, or even the distant harmonics of flies hanging over the meadows in the sun, the combined sound might lift us off our feet. Church creation sings. And as impressive as that is, what I am most fascinated by is what creation sings about. Listen to Psalm 148, 13 to 14. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His splendor, his splendor is above the earth and above the heavens. Now, listen to verse 14. In verse 13, creation sings to the God who created them. But then in verse 14, creation sings about what God has done. Verse 14, and he has raised up for his people a horn. The praise of all his faithful servants of Israel, the people close to his heart, praise the Lord. Now, did you catch that phrase in verse 14? God has raised up for his people a horn. What is that? Well, a horn symbolizes power and authority. Now, that helps a little bit in understanding what God has done, but we're still not sure what it means. What power? What authority is the psalmist referring to? Well, if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, we find some help interpreting this image back in Luke chapter 1 in the Christmas story. Remember Zechariah, the elderly priest and the father of John the Baptist? Remember when he sang a song? Well, in his song, he sings about a horn. Listen to what it says. Praise be to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Because he has come and he has redeemed his people, he has raised up, here it is, a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Zechariah sings about the horn of salvation being a person. Any guesses who that person might be? 
It's Jesus. Sure enough, guess what we find in the Christmas story in Luke? As small and powerless as Jesus looks as an infant in Mary's arms, the angels recognize who he is. Jesus is the creative word that gave the angels their existence. The baby in the manger is their creator. Remember the opening of John's gospel in John chapter 1, verse 1? It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is saying Jesus always existed, even before time began. And how do we know this? Because of John 1, 3. It tells us this, Through him, Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. See, back in Genesis 1, Jesus was with God creating heaven and earth. Though Jesus is God, in the Old Testament from Genesis 1 through Malachi 4, Jesus was invisible to humanity. But that changed at Christmas. At the incarnation, Jesus put on human flesh, making himself visible to humanity. If you want to see God, if you want to see his son, see him in his son, all you have to do is look at him in the Gospels. Jesus didn't become God. God is who Jesus always is. Well, seeing their creator wrapped in human flesh, lying in a manger, notice what the angels do in Luke 2, 13 to 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. If you want to see God, follow the examples of the angels. Look at Jesus. So what? What do we do with all of this? Well, the days right after Christmas can be kind of a letdown. New toys break. Uh, The Christmas tree dies. Uh, Credit card bills begin to roll in the mail, and financial strain begins. The days after December 25th, they can be a downer. But Psalm 148 sets a very different tone. It shows us that every day, every day is a good day to praise the Lord. Maybe you're thinking, Christmas just wore me out and I don't feel like singing. Try telling that to heaven and earth. 2,000 years have passed since Jesus was born, and yet heaven and earth continue to praise God for the Son of God for Jesus. So Psalm 148 leaves us with an important question to ask ourselves. As the church, those redeemed by Jesus, have we grown tired of praising God for Jesus? Well, it's time to find out because it's time to worship the newborn King.